0: If you please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we continue to look at these verses, <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 14. Hear God's word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are some very different beliefs being taught in the church about the end times, and some of these different beliefs are found even in the OPC, and as I explain some of these different beliefs regarding the end times, I'd hope you would recognize that while certain forms of these beliefs are not uh, allowed by the officers in the OPC, um, there is not just one view of the end times that is considered the orthodox view. I will be explaining um, my particular view, which is an amillennial view, which is the predominant view of the OPC, but nevertheless, we would hold uh, believe that those who hold to other forms of belief regarding the end times are certainly believers, and uh, there are even those in the OPC, as I said a moment ago, even congregations um, that, and pastors, elders who would hold to a postmillennial position or perhaps a historical premillennial position. But as one example of uh, one of the the different beliefs that are held, um, the view of postmillennialism says that as time goes on, things are going to get better and better. Uh, They say that more and more Christianity is going to dominate the world, its culture, its politics, its laws, and the media, and uh, those who believe this way speak of a coming golden age. Some go so far as to say that in the future, the curse of sin will be lifted from this earth. And understand, I'm talking about before Christ returns. Um, Disease, we are told, will be greatly eradicated. The earth will give of its bounty with little effort. Wars and struggles between nations will cease or nearly cease. The earth will essentially become like a return to the Garden of Eden. the belief is that this will happen as Christians become the majority in the world. As Christians take over the institutions of society, laws will be passed that are in accordance with God's word. And uh, the, the belief is that through Christians preaching the gospel and through Christians exerting their influence on society, evil will be restrained, and consequently, we will know God's blessings. The result will be greater earthly prosperity and peace. And the better teachers of this view say that this progress will be through the preaching of the gospel, but many others give a more prominent role to Christians being involved in transforming culture and politics, um, apparently believing that we can change people and society and ultimately the world by means of legislating morality and legislating Christianity. And the bottom line with this view is that things are not going to get worse, In fact, according to this view, the world will get better and better morally and spiritually, and evil will be more and more restrained. And those who believe this way speak triumphantly of how Christ and the gospel will have the victory in a very visible, political, and earthly way. Um, Some from this group do teach that there's going to be a period of apostasy that will spring up briefly right at the very end, before the Lord returns, but even so, it will be very minor. For all practical purposes, there will be nothing but progress and domination by Christianity over the world, and then Christ will return once a Christian world kingdom has been put in place and has been in place for a thousand years. This is the view of post millennialism the view that Christ will return after or post millennium which is that 1,000-year period of earthly prosperity. And notice that in connection with this view, there will be a 1,000 years, a literal 1,000 years of earthly prosperity without Christ's coming. And what is striking about this view in relation to the passage before us is that this view has no place for a coming Antichrist. The teachers of postmillennialism say that the coming of the Antichrist and the time of rebellion, the time of apostasy, that is always associated in Scripture with his coming, they say these are all things that have happened in the past. They say that the subject matter of all of the book of Revelation, almost all of the book of Revelation, is already fulfilled. Essentially, only the last three chapters, chapters 20 through 22, are said to have any relevance for us today. They say the rest was all fulfilled at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And though they can't help but see in Scripture the teaching of a time of apostasy and, and a struggle with wickedness at the very end, they minimize any kind of tribulation and present it as being something quite small and insignificant. In some, they insist that the great tribulation, apostasy, the Antichrist of which Scripture warns, are already fulfilled. That's one view. That's the post millennial view. The premillennial view I brought up last time, it's a very prominent view in the Christian church today, especially in Baptist circles. Um, the, this view of premillennialism uh, says that there will be a coming Antichrist and a time of apostasy and a time of great tribulation associated with all of this, but Christians will not have to go through it. You've probably heard of the rapture. You've probably heard of the movie and book Left Behind, which are based on this false teaching of the rapture. And uh, this rapture doctrine is not something that would be allowed uh, for the officers in the OPC to hold to. Um, But there is a form of premillennialism that does not have the rapture that would be allowed. But the teaching um, that has to do with the rapture is that Christ will come in a secret, invisible way to take his people off of this earth just before things get really bad. Everybody else will be left behind to endure seven years of tribulation under the reign of the Antichrist. After that, Christ will return to earth with his saints, will destroy the Antichrist, and will establish an earthly kingdom where he and the Jews will rule over the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then there's the view of amillennialism which if we just focus for a moment on the name it means literally no millennium not that we don't believe that the thousand years mentioned in Revelation has no significance but it what it refers to is the fact that we do not believe that this is referring to a literal thousand years and we do not believe that it's referring to an earthly kingdom. Um, we believe that in all millennial circles that since the rest of the numbers in revelation are symbolic that this thousand years is also symbolic and it refers to this gospel age in which jesus is reigning from heaven as the ascended lord we believe that there are signs that that christ has given us that are meant to inspire our hope in the lord's coming things that we are to witness and to see going on in society that tell us that the Lord is coming, and that there will be an Antichrist, there will be a time of great tribulation and apostasy at the very end, from which the Lord himself will deliver us. Our hope is not an earthly kingdom, our hope is not a thousand years of some kind of a golden age that still exists, where there's, that's, it's, it's still a fallen world, there are still unbelievers, there are still all of these problems. The, the, our hope is not a thousand-year reign, golden age, um, but rather our hope is the Lord's return. So if we think about what is the Christian's hope according to these three systems for premillennialism, the hope is the rapture, that we will not have to experience any of the hardships of the end times. Uh, The postmillennial hope is an earthly prosperity, a thousand years of earthly prosperity without Christ. Uh, with only a partial prosperity, I would argue. Um, If the curse of sin is not totally eradicated, then we're not in heaven yet, and we have have to go through this thousand years um, before finally we can be with Christ. Omnilinalism says, as I said a moment ago, that our hope is Christ's return. Our hope is to be with Christ. Our hope is Christ restoring all things at his return. And what I would especially bring to your attention this evening is how both of the views of premillennialism and postmillennialism essentially tell believers today that the antichrist, that rebellion, apostasy, the great tribulation, do not concern you. They are irrelevant to you. They have not are nothing to even think about. Um, postmillennialism says they've already happened. The second view, the premillennial view, says that you will be raptured from the earth before these things happen. And people, God, I bring these things to your attention because these views are very popular today, and even though many believe these things, I am convinced that they are unbiblical, and then naturally that would mean that they are dangerous for the church, dangerous for you as individual believers. Now, granted, uh, there are believers who hold to premillennialism. There are believers who hold to postmillennialism, and they would accuse all millennialists, like myself, of being wrong and of being dangerous. And, uh, for example, premillennialists would say that by denying the rapture, you are hurting the cause of evangelism, because they very much believe that uh, that the rapture doctrine is very important in, in evangelizing the world. They say that the message that we are to tell unbelievers is that you can escape the great tribulation. You can escape the coming of the Antichrist if you will, but put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before he comes and he could come at any moment. So you must believe in him now. And then you can escape all of that, uh, all of that difficulty. And also they they also would say that as all-millennialists, we discourage Christians by telling them that they're going to have to go through these tough times of the tribulation. Of course, postmillennialism accuses us of being uh, uh, all-millennialists of being pessimistic and of uh, being hopeless for the future, hopeless for um, any kind of an earthly kingdom. And uh, my response to that would be, well, we are hoping for an earthly kingdom, but we're hoping for the new heavens and new earth, not this earth. But hoping for the new heavens and new earth that Christ will bring at His coming. So, all the way around, right where we all believe, depending on which view we hold, that the other views are wrong, the other views are, are you know harmful. But um, I believe that postmillennialism, premillennialism are a great disservice to God's people because if you believe these things, they're going to leave you unprepared for the events of the future, which I believe the scriptures clearly teach we are going to go through. These views leave you with the false hope of an earthly kingdom of earthly prosperity. These teachings can only lead to despair and discouragement when evil intensifies over time and the anti-Christian kingdom of this world is revealed. And sadly, many Christians will be caught off guard and will be shaken in mind and alarmed when tribulation comes. And so I believe it's my duty as a preacher of God's word to preach the truth and to warn you that what is about what's going to happen so that if the Antichrist comes in our lifetime, your faith will not falter one bit. We have a saying that information is power. And especially is that true when the information is the truth of God's word. We have something in God's word that empowers our faith, gives us the strength to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, and that's the goal of this evening's message. The passage before us this evening is clear that Christ is not going to return until the Antichrist has appeared and the rebellion has occurred. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the Son of God. Of destruction. So we need to recognize the relationship between the Antichrist and the Lord's coming, and we need to also recognize what the Scripture says about the Antichrist so that you and I can recognize him when he comes. We also need to determine from Scripture whether or not Christians are going to be raptured. I want to take a moment to, to analyze this idea of Christians being raptured and escaping the tribulation Um, a truth that was taught by the Apostle Paul and confirmed by the rest of Scripture is that there is one coming of the Lord in the future. Not two, not a secret one, and then a public one. No, one coming. Always the coming of the Lord. I'm talking about his second coming. One second coming. Always the coming of the Lord is described as one coming that is visible and with power and great glory. Jesus' ascension, the angel spoke to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that immediately after the tribulation, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 24 verses 36 and following and Luke 17 verses 20 and following are considered the classic passages to prove the rapture. I like to read for uh, for us this evening Matthew 24 <clears throat> verses 36 through 44. 36 through 44. If you want to turn there, you can follow along So actually, in Luke's parallel account, it also speaks of two men being in bed, and one is taken, and the other left. Matthew speaks of two men in the field, also the passage speaks of two women grinding grain together, one is taken, and the other left. And in the context, we are told, quoting from Luke 17, verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. But according to the rapture doctrine, Jesus is not revealed on that day. It is a secret coming in which no one can see him. His revelation is said to be many years down the road after the rapture. And to understand these passages, Matthew 24 and Luke 17, we need to consider the context. Looking at the passage, we see that this leaving of some behind is occurring in the context of Jesus returning to judge. We are told that what happened with Noah and Lot were pictures of what will happen on this coming day when some are left behind. Just as Noah and his family were separated from the wicked, who were then destroyed, just as Lot was separated from the residents of Sodom, who were then destroyed, so on the last day, believers will be taken and separated from unbelievers, who will then be destroyed. Yes, unbelievers will be left behind. But will they be left behind to live for years and years through the great tribulation and beyond? Did the unbelievers in Noah's day live on and get another chance to repent? Did the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah who were left behind live on for years? No. And in the same way, those who are left behind at the Lord's coming will not go on to live for years and years as the rapture people tell us, but those left behind will be destroyed in the fires of hell. The separation which Scripture describes is the separation of Judgment Day. And if a careful study of Matthew 24 and 17 is not enough to destroy this whole notion of the rapture, consider how the doctrine of the rapture is considered by the passage is is, is uh, contradicted by the passage we are considering this evening. The doctrine of the rapture says that Christ could come at any moment to gather his people. But Paul in our passage is saying that the coming of Christ to gather his people is not going to come until after the rebellion and the coming of the man of lawlessness. There is one coming, and it will be a coming to gather his people after they have gone through the reign of the Antichrist and the great tribulation. Some postmillennialists, as I said a moment ago, have said these things have all happened. And in fact, they say that Jesus has come uh, in the destruction of Jerusalem. There's a, it's called preterism says that the coming of Christ took place in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so they also, like the premillennialists, teach more than one second coming. They say that that um Even in Matthew 24, where it says the coming, talks about the coming of Christ on the clouds with power and glory, that that actually is talking about his coming in judgment against Jerusalem. But it says there in Matthew 24 that all of the tribes of the earth will see, they will see the Son of Man coming in this way. And that certainly does not apply to the destruction of Jerusalem. So, contrary to the beliefs of many today, The Antichrist will be in power at the time the Lord returns. Verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that part of what Christ will be returning to do is to destroy the Antichrist. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So who is this Antichrist? What is he like? What will he be doing? Who is he? And we notice that our passage does not use the word Antichrist. In fact, only the Apostle John uses that word. But if we compare the destruction here of this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, this lawless one with what other scriptures say about the Antichrist, this man of this, this figure of great evil associated with the end times, we know that this is who Paul is talking about. I don't have the time this evening to go into a deep study of the book of Daniel, which is very important to an understanding of the Antichrist, especially if you want to do a study. Chapter 7, 8, and, and 11 of Daniel are very significant. But in chapter 7 of Daniel, he speaks of a little horn, a king. It's very clear that this little horn is a king. He's also called a beast, which parallels uh, Revelation 13. They're... they're, they're um, In uh, Daniel 7, it's clear that this is a political ruler, and that he arises out of a kingdom having roots in the Roman Empire. We are told that this king will speak pompous words and make war against the saints and prevail against against them, but then he will be judged, and it describes Christ returning and destroying him. This is very clearly a description of what we call the Antichrist. Moving on in Daniel, in chapters 8 and 11, we are given a prophecy of the kingdom of Greece, the world kingdom that arose just before the Roman Empire. And in connection with the kingdom of Greece, we are told of another little horn. A particular king was described in the same way as the Antichrist of Daniel 7. Um, we read a prophecy about him in chapter 8, verses 11 and following. It says, he, uh, it, it depends on your translation, whether they they say it or he, this horn it's talking about, became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, the place of a sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? We'll stop there, but this this horn, this king, is understood almost unanimously by Bible scholars and commentators to be Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king who came well before the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who... called himself God-manifested. And uh, he brought about the transgression, this abomination of desolation or or transgression that makes desolate, which is prophesied in Daniel when he slaughtered hogs in the temple at Jerusalem and he demanded that he be worshipped. He set up idols in the temple. And knowing this, we would ask, well, was Antiochus Epiphanes the Antichrist? And for a number of reasons, we know he is not. First, we know that the true Antichrist is someone after Antiochus Epiphanes, because as already mentioned, Daniel 7 speaks of this coming Antichristian king as coming out of a later kingdom, having roots in the Roman Empire. And if you can recall your world history, the Roman Empire arose after the Grecian Empire of Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's another reason why we know Antiochus Epiphanes was not the Antichrist, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, that great chapter on the end times, quote, so when you see the abomination of desolation or that transgression that desolates, uh, spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then, and he says that you need to do such and such. Jesus gives some very practical instructions. He gives warnings to the residents of Jerusalem, about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, and not that many years later, Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and desecrated the holy city of God and its temple. And it's also worth pointing out that the Roman Empire was a kingdom ruled by emperors who exalted themselves as God. Uh, It was an anti-Christian kingdom that opposed God's people. But was even this kingdom, the anti-Christian kingdom, was there a particular Roman emperor who can said to be the Antichrist? Some say yes. But remember the context of Jesus' instruction. He was telling his disciples in verse 2 that the temple will be destroyed. And the disciples respond in verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? and What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Clearly, the disciples pictured the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem as things that would be associated with the very end of time. He thought that any desecration of Jerusalem would take place right at the very end, and Jesus wants to correct this notion. And what he goes on to tell us in Matthew 24 is that there will be many disturbances and events that must precede his return. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple are types of end-time events. Antiochus Epiphanes was not the Antichrist because Years after his reign, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, there will be another abomination of desolation. But even the fall of Jerusalem and the desecration of the temple is not the one and final abomination of desolation. Because after Jesus describes the fall of Jerusalem, he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's talking about all of the days, including way off into the future, just before the Lord returns. To the other. And in the context of the discussion of the fall of Jerusalem, Jesus says these words in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22 For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so we see very clearly that the Lord is is thinking beyond the fall of Jerusalem to a future event of far greater significance. He is telling his disciples, he's telling us that the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple are not going to be immediately uh, followed by his coming. So how are we to understand Antiochus Epiphanes and the Roman emperors and their empires and their desecration of the temple and Jerusalem. How are we to understand these things in relation to the end times? Well, these kings are types of the Antichrist. Their kingdoms picture for us something of the nature of the Antichrist's kingdom and work. These these events are all types of the Antichrist and his opposition to the kingdom of God. The fact that Christ refers to another abomination of desolation after Antiochus Epiphanes that tells us that, um, let me back up, the, the fact that he refers to another abomination of, of desolation after Antio- Antiochus Epiphanes that the people in his day would see, and the fact that Jesus teaches a coming tribulation even greater than the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple tribulation Um, that will end with his coming, teach us that there are going to be ongoing events. There are going to be ongoing events that take place in history that are pictures of the Antichrist and his kingdom. This lines up with what John tells us in 1 John 2.18 where he says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, Even now, many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. There have always been antichrists. There will continue to be antichrists. Antiochus Epiphanes was an antichrist. The Roman emperors were antichrists. The reformers said that the Roman Catholic popes of their day were antichrists. Some people in in more recent times have pointed to various political leaders including Adolf Hitler as the Antichrist. There have been many figures who have been thought to be the Antichrist and though they may rightly be called Antichrists they are not the actual Antichrist and we know they are not because the coming of the Antichrist will take place just prior to Christ's coming. Paul tells us that Christ will destroy the Antichrist with his coming. Though we must distinguish between Antichrists and the Antichrist, they are related. All Antichrists, as well as the final Antichrist, are inspired by Satan. After all, what is an Antichrist? If we focus for a moment on the meaning of the word, the word Antichrist on one level means against Christ and brings out how these Antichrists are enemies of Christ, enemies of, the, of His church. But the word antichrist also has the meaning taking the place of Christ. The antichrist is a person who sets himself up in the place of Christ, takes to himself the the position and the roles of Christ. He is a king over a kingdom who at the same time gains a following as a religious leader. His goal is to take over Christ's rule over his people He wants for himself a kingdom like Christ has. He wants to be honored as God. He wants to be looked up to as Savior. He wants what Christ has and attends to do so through a human figure. Huxama, in his commentary on Revelation, he writes this. He says, in short, it may be said that the devil, in his last attempt to oppose God's plan, simply realizes his own kingdom, or attempts to realize it, and boldly sets it up. The first attempts were rather negative in nature, always aiming at the destruction of God's kingdom first of all. But this last attempt really consists in this, that the devil now ignores all that has been done by God Almighty, ignores that Christ has come and is king, ignores that the church exists and that there is already a kingdom of Christ in principle established in the world, and simply proceeds to realize and establish his own kingdom. End quote. What this means is that Satan is behind all antichrists. The antichrist and his kingdom are all about Satan's hatred of Christ and his church, his hatred of you, and what he does is to mimic Christ through various human leaders and one day in a very powerful last-ditch effort through the Antichrist. You can put it this way, Christ comes with the power of God, and the Antichrist will come with the power of Satan. Christ comes with signs and wonders. The Antichrist will come with the the false signs and wonders of Satan. Christ is the revelation of God. Antichrist is, as much as any human being can be, an embodiment of Satan. Satan. Christ establishes a kingdom, Antichrist establishes a kingdom on Satan's behalf. And the reason why there have always been Antichrists is because Satan has always wanted to use the leaders of this world and its empires to destroy the church. Satan tried to use the kingdoms of Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome, destroy God's people. The, the Roman Empire was especially inspired by Satan in its attempts to eradicate Christianity. And essentially, we can and we must see Satan as the one behind all political attempts to persecute and destroy God's people through the ages. Anytime we see a particular person in leadership being used against the church, it's appropriate to speak of that person as a kind of antichrist. Paul speaks of this ongoing reality in verse 7 when he says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 1 John 4.3 tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is both coming and is now already in the world. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. In Paul's day, in our, in our day, Satan wants, he longs to establish this anti-Christian kingdom. And he's able to accomplish some some limited results toward his goals and toward his purpose. But right now, something or someone is restraining that work, which is why the Antichrist has not yet come. Satan wants him to come. Things are being put in place for in preparation for his coming but right now he is not being allowed to appear but one day that restraint will be lifted and the antichrist will make his appearance next time we will spend some more time on this passage and on the subject of the antichrist but in closing i would have you to med- meditate on the fact that this kingdom of the antichrist is a fake kingdom the best that satan can do is to try to copycat what jesus has done it's Jesus who is the true king. It is Jesus who has the real kingdom, the, a, a, a true kingdom, a truly glorious kingdom, a spiritual and heavenly kingdom that, yes, will make use of this earth, but a new earth completely delivered from the curse of sin. Our hope is not a kingdom of this earth that still has sin, that still has the curse, that still has death, that still has unbelievers. Even if sin is greatly pushed back, I'm talking about the kingdom of post-millennialism. Even if the kingdom um, uh, of, the, of the church is, is flourishes, and if sin is greatly pushed back, that is not the kingdom that Christ has promised. The kingdom over which Jesus rules is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom of true joy and prosperity, a spiritual kingdom grounded in the cross. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confession says that's the church. The heart of the kingdom of God is the church. Yes, that church manifests itself in the world. Yes, it shows itself outwardly. But at its heart, it is the church. That is the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And any kind of earthly kingdom that Satan sets up is not going to, of course, have any kind of eternal joy and blessing. He can't give you a kingdom that lasts. His blessings are only as good as the fleeting pleasures of this material world. And yet, as we will see next time, many will be duped by the lies of Satan. It's truly a blessing that Jesus Christ has died as our sin substitute in order to deliver us from Satan and and from his kingdom, which is doomed to destruction. By grace, God has given us a place in his eternal kingdom. As we contemplate these things, it's really impossible for us to really grasp the greatness of God's kingdom. The grace that enables us to belong to God's kingdom is priceless. Really, it took the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It took his work on the cross to earn us a place in this kingdom. And so it is that our King Jesus is worthy of all praise and thanksgiving. We celebrate his first coming, and we long for his second coming. And what does scripture say about his second coming? It says that with his second coming, all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In other words, all of these opposing kingdoms, all of these earthly kingdoms will fall away. There will be one kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close with these words from Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the first coming of the Lord. That's an interesting way to put it, a way for us to think of Christ's coming here in this Christmas season. For the grace of God has appeared What is our blessed hope? Notice what Scripture says here. Is our blessed hope the rapture? Is the blessed hope a thousand years of a golden age here on earth, where there's still sin and death, unbelievers? Or is our hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Scripture tells us what our hope is. It's the appearing of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. God and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has come and that he has very clearly come to establish a kingdom and that kingdom is being established as your church is being built. Lord, we pray that as we face the future, we would do so with the proper biblical understanding of the things to come, that we would not lose hope as we face trials and tribulations, as we face the onslaughts of Satan Lord, help us to, to recognize that Jesus Christ is King, that all opposition to him is but an anti-Christian opposition, for you are King, you are our ruler, you have the victory in principle, you will reveal yourself and put to death all of our enemies, all of those who oppose you. Father, we look forward to that. May we not lose sight ever of the hope as it is presented to us in Scripture, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray that you would come quickly. We pray these things in Jesus' name.